Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we talk to Colin Freeman, the Telegraph's journalist in Kyiv, and we'll hear from Lulia Osmoloska, the woman giving negotiating advice to the Ukrainians during their peace talks with Russia. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 27, and joining our conversation today is Dominic Nichols, The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Mutaz Ahmed from our comment team, and Colin Freeman, who's calling in from Kiev. Before we get to Colin, Dom Nichols gave us the latest updates from the last 24 hours. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. It's been a fairly static 24 hours. The latest MOD assessment was, was exactly that. It said the, the Russian offensive has, uh, has continued to stall, get bogged down. Um, there have actually been a few, uh, few counterattacks by Ukrainian forces, certainly to the, to the west of, of uh, Ukraine. They, they pushed into the town of uh, Makariv yesterday, about 20 k's to the west of Kyiv. Um, that seems to have held. They did also take back um, the area around Hostomel Airfield to the northwest. That airfield that was that Russia tried to take in an air assault on the first day, uh, presumably as a launch point, then into the capital. That faltered that air assault, and uh, the Hostomel Airfield has been contested ever since. Um, it was reported to be back in uh, Ukrainian hands. It now looks like it, it may have uh, been retaken by by Russia. So a lot of heavy fighting into the northwest of um, of Kiev. And elsewhere, uh, Mariupol is still still holding out. Um, there's been a uh, a push to the northwest, um, uh, about 30 k's away from Mariupol, and also they're trying to they're trying to get into the outer suburbs in the northeast of the city itself. But it doesn't look like they're, they're able to get through to the um, the what's left of the Ukrainian defence right in the in the centre of the city there. Um, so that's basically basically been it from the sort of tactical movements on the ground. We still haven't seen anything more really from from Russia apart from um, apart from long range shelling and continued activity missiles and what have you from uh, from the air. I'll, I'll pause there. Thanks, Tom. Um, Colin, can I bring you in here? Thank you so much for for joining us. Um, can you tell us a bit a bit about where you are uh, and and what's happening in Kiev uh, today? Uh, yes, I'm one of the Telegraph's foreign correspondents. I've been here in Kiev for about three weeks now, really just trying to cover the events as they unfold here on the ground. I'm, I, at the moment, I'm speaking from the bedroom of the Airbnb that I'm staying at in Kiev. Um, won't be going very far from there today because we are under curfew, which started last night. It's a 30, I think a 35-hour curfew. It finishes tomorrow morning. The purpose of that... Uh, Well, it depends on who you ask, but um, officially the purpose of these curfews is to allow the Ukrainian military to keep a close eye on the city's streets, Um, usually to, uh, so they say anyway, usually to keep an eye out for Russian saboteurs who might be trying to infiltrate the city. The logic being that if... um, the streets are completely empty of people other than security forces. It is rather easier to spot Russian saboteurs coming in, whereas if the streets are full of people coming and going, then those saboteurs can uh, clearly uh, blend in with the with the wider population. There may be other military purposes to it as well in terms of making military movements more easy. Uh, I, I'm, you know, uh, I'm really not quite sure, to be honest. And what's day-to-day life um, like in, in Kiev? We're in you know, the 26th, 27th day of the war now. Um, how have things changed? 
Well, it's surprising. I was just having a conversation with a colleague, actually, who's coming in possibly to replace me in about a week's time. And um, I, I think I've kind of got used to it. When I first got here um, about five days into the invasion, I took the train in. The train still runs remarkably from Lviv in western Ukraine. Um, and um, I got here and you, as you left the station, the station area was, you know, felt like a normal station really. But um, as you drove into town, um, you, it was very clear that there was very, very few people around and it really did feel something of a ghost town. I think there are more people on the streets now than there were in the immediate um, days following the start of the invasion, I would say, three weeks ago. Um, having said that, it may just be also that I've got used to driving around in places where there's very, very few people. But certainly the, the estimates are that about maybe half of Kiev's population has fled, which is about, um, you know, three million people or so total population. So maybe there's about one and a half million still here, which is, you know, not insubstantial. And what's the morale like amongst the Ukrainians you're talking to? Well, when I speak to people, most people are all like, you know, yep, glory be to Ukraine, we're staying here, we're in for the fight, and so on. But uh, we always have to bear in mind in these situations that um, there may be a response given to foreign journalists, and then there may be a private um, feeling which is rather different. Um, some people certainly are, you know, very buoyed with the way the war has gone so far. They feel that this has brought the brought the country together as a nation. Um, it's brought politic, you know, it's brought out the best in the the country's politicians, who until now are known for infighting and corruption and um, and other things, pretty much like politicians around the world, I suppose. Um, so you know, there there was a sense of optimism, um, and that you know the, the country is doing pretty well. Uh, against this, the, 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 these Russian invaders, but you know, occasionally you speak to people who are who have stayed. So far, we were at a, a bombing, covering this, the scene of a bombing yesterday, where a shopping mall was hit by a missile. And I spoke to a lady there who lived in a flat nearby, which had been partly damaged by the by the missile. And she said, "Look, I've you know I've been here. I've stuck it out until now, but that missile was was really big, and it was too close for comfort. And I think I'm going to leave Kiev now. Um, I just really don't like it here anymore." And I said to her, "Have you been to you know? Can you describe what you you know what you saw when you immediately you know immediately after the the, the bomb went off?" And she said, "No, I haven't been round the corner of my flat to actually look at the impact site." I don't want to. I'm quite stressed out enough as it is, which I think gives you a little bit of an insight into the fact that, you know, not everybody is, you know, finding this a, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? A, a lot of people are, are, are finding this pretty tough going. You know, not everybody is out cheering on the troops and really feeling that sort of patriotic surge i think a lot of people are just like god i would really like this all all to be over you wrote a, a really moving account of uh, the funeral of a ukrainian soldier a few days ago um, can you tell us a little bit about about that what was the atmosphere like yeah it was at the, the 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 cemetery was was empty we went down there partly actually just to to have a look around the cemetery because we understood that there had been a number of new war dead um, uh, that had been buried there in recent days. Um, and as it happened, um, a funeral took place while we were there. It was a, a fairly brief affair, really. Um, a bus turned up with a group of soldiers on board. Um, they were actually a ceremonial guard whose duty, as I understand it at the moment, is simply to be on hand to provide a send-off for soldiers who are at the front. Um, and um, about you know half an hour later, a um, a vehicle carrying a coffin turned up, and it was uh, the vehicle duly drove further into the cemetery. And um, a priest, uh, uh, an Orthodox priest, then said uh, um, some prayers over the coffin, and that there was a, a ceremonial guard armed with swords and Ukrainian flags who stood to attention as the coffin was lowered into the ground. And then there was uh, only one of the soldier's actual comrades was with him. He had accompanied the coffin 
from the front line. Um, we didn't really get any information about this soldier other than his name and that he had been killed uh, defending Kiev on March the 15th, about a week ago. Um, and uh, this this one soldier who had come with him, who I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in these things, but but looked kind of battle-worn and 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 weary and like looked very much like a man who had places to go. Uh, he turned up for the duration of the funeral, which was about 20 minutes, and then shot off straight away. It was a business-like affair. And uh, the only other thing that he said was that the... Uh, the, the the deceased's father was uh, currently in the city of Mariupol, which um, some of your listeners will be aware is the focus of the the main Russian siege, this port city in the in the southeast, where thousands of people have been uh, reported to have been killed, and hundreds of thousands are still trapped. Um, this this sold, the dead soldier's father was in the city of Mariupol, and he did not know yet that his son had died. Um, which is uh, pretty sad, really. Um, and that that was about all we got. And then with that, the um, the the soldier headed off. And as we spoke, uh, there were there was the sounds of shell fire somewhere quite near. We don't know where. And um, that that kind of hastened proceedings to a close. But th- those funerals are taking place. I think pretty on a pre- pretty regular basis at the moment. We counted, I think, probably about a dozen freshly dug graves in the in the cemetery and I, I think there may have been more it's a big place it's not possible to to look around at all um and also in in one part of the cemetery there was a a, a large number of graves um commemorating people who have died in the the, the campaign in the in eastern ukraine since 2014 when Vladimir Putin annexed Crimea and um, uh, uh, and also the the, the pro separatist republics set up there. So that, you know that there has been a war going on here for for the best part of eight years already, and it's claimed a number of lives. Uh, Mutaz or Tom, do you want to come in on this? Yes, just a quick question for Colin. If it, when you tell people you work for a British newspaper or you're you're a British journalist, or if you ask them about sort of Britain and what what Britain is doing. Is there a particular sort of reaction you get from them? Yes, generally speaking, um, Brit- Britons are quite popular in uh, in Ke- certainly in Kiev at the moment. Um, we get the occasional "Oh, Boris Johnson, yes, good" kind of thing, which I guess you don't get that much at home. Um, and then we also get occasional comments from soldiers at checkpoints. Um, you know, we're flashing our passports, you know, once every 10 minutes when we drive around Kiev because of all the checkpoints. And uh, there's the, the occasional sort of uh, grunt of appreciation for the M laws, the, um, uh, the um, I can't remember what the, the acronym is, but it's the, 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 the anti-tank missiles that Britain sent Ukraine about um, uh, six, six or seven weeks ago before the war started. So there's, there's occasional nods of appreciation for those as well. Um, one sometimes feels like one, one is a sort of travelling arms dealer or something. Um, but yeah, yes, the, the Britain's, Britain's support for Ukraine has not gone unnoticed. I think, uh, I think it's fair to say that, yeah, by the ordinary people, not just at the state level. Thanks, Colin. Uh, Dom Nichols, do you want to um, have any thoughts on anything, anything we've been speaking about? Yes, thanks. Hi, Colin. Um, great to hear from you, and thanks for your, your absolutely vital work. It's, uh, it's essential that we all get to hear what it's like from the, on the ground. Can I ask you a little bit about the, the messaging from the leadership and President Zelensky? So over here, we see a lot on social media um, from, from him directly or from his team, but more, more broadly from, from the Ukrainian government. And they are they're absolutely uh, smashing the information war against, against Russia on social media. Um, and he doesn't seem to be... Zelensky doesn't seem as if he, he's hiding in his, in his bunker. He's doing a lot of messaging and videos at, out and about. I'm just conscious that you're, you're now under a, um, a curfew to, to potentially to sort of see if there are any of these Russian saboteurs around. And we hear reports of Wagner Group looking to assassinate him and what have you. Did you get a feel that, that there is this kind of bunker mentality from the leadership um, and, and other people over there um, getting the same messages? Do they believe in their, in their leader? Are they seeing these very positive upbeat messages that, that we're seeing over here? Yeah, to answer your second question first, Dominic, Quite often when I'm out and about, I ask people, what do you think of President Zelensky? And generally speaking, 
people say, yeah, he's done a good job. He stepped into the role that um, was required of him at this time. You know, uh, they might have their criticisms about how he runs the government day to day, but he, he does seem to have that sort of Churchill factor, I suppose you could say. Um, and part of that is because of the fact that he stayed in the country. Um, uh, as to his occasional appearances... That, that I think they certainly are effective. They, you know, the, these 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 occasional sort of videos that he produces of him on walkabouts around the city. Um, I I suspect they're fairly carefully planned ahead, um, and that he doesn't spend very much time on the ground when he's doing them, or you know, and that he he's very careful not to leave any geolocating traces etc etc because i would imagine that there is probably a missile or quite possibly a missile with his name on it somewhere um in russia um uh but i think they're they're quite effective though in in portraying him as a kind of guerrilla leader type you know a robin hood against um mr putin who it's very easy to you know to to like see as this kind of aging supervillain at his you know super, his big long table surrounded by his you know his elderly acolytes i think that is certainly the way it's played um on social media um so he, you know the, the the pr war certainly um has certainly been won i think internationally by mr zelensky um it, one thing the, the the mayor of 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 kiev vitaly klitschko who many of your listeners will know is um was better known as a a world heavyweight boxing champion until recently. He does go around um, quite a few of the bomb sites, um, the, the, but you know where there's been shelling here in the capital in recent days. He, he's quite makes quite regular appearances at some of them, which suggests that you know he's perhaps slightly less concerned about his security or whatever. Um, so so he does go around, but I, I dare say he's not quite as high profile a target as uh, as Mr Zelensky is. Just a question from me, Colin. Um, we see a lot about um, how Russian dissidents would like to frame this as Putin's war, not Russia's war. Uh, what what what's your sense from people on the ground in Kiev? Do, do they do they see that? Do they see Putin, as you said, as a sort of the grand supervillain, and ordinary Russians uh, are separate from him, or or, or not? I, I think it depends on who you talk to. You you do hear people saying, um, describing the Russians as orcs, O R C S, um, which um, some of you is, is it's become a common phrase to describe. The, the, the invading Russian army, the orcs have done this or the orcs have done that. Um, it, it, you, you, you may be familiar with the term. It actually comes from um, the, the Tolkien novels and it means a kind of, you know, um, unpleasant sort of goblin type character. Um, and that, that has become a, a common term of abuse for the Russian army. To what extent, you know, people are sort of saying we hate all Russians as opposed to just Mr. Putin, uh, I, I'm not quite clear. I think if you are living in some of these villages um, on the outskirts of Kiev and, and elsewhere where you've had bad interactions with Russian forces um, who've maybe come to your house and, you know, or looted your shops or, you know, shot up your village or whatever, then yes, I think it's probably like we're not keen on any Russians um, amongst those who have... Um, you know, not experience that directly. I think there is more just a sense that this is, you know, th- this is about Vladimir Putin and the people around him, as opposed to the, the the ordinary Russian population. Lots of people here, for example, have you know friends and relatives living in Russia. Um, I should also point out that you know, just in the interests of balance, um, we've spoken to people who've had interactions with Russian soldiers when when their villages have been invaded by them and so on and that they do say that you know quite a lot of the russian soldiers treat them in a fairly professional manner they're courteous they you know they don't go around harming people just for the sake of it so you know it's it's easy to assume that every single from some of the reporting that every single russian soldier here is is looting and pillaging and shooting with impunity um i you do hear other accounts though that, that suggest that you know, some of them are taking a fairly professional attitude and just doing what, you know, uh, just following orders, really. Um, although most people here obviously would rather they weren't following those orders. 
I don't know if Mutaz or Dom, if you want to come in at this point. If I may, please. Yeah, just, just one other question, Colin. We're, we're talking about, so we're looking at the negotiations today, a bit of, bit of reporting about that. President Zelensky has, has made some comments uh, um, this morning. And I mean, um, so as part of this podcast that's coming out later, I interviewed Lulia Osmolovka, who's a, um, one of the advisors to the government about the negotiations. And she was saying that essentially we're in a kind of phony war at the moment. The, the negotiating teams just aren't, um, they're not getting anywhere really um, because neither side sees their advantage uh, being furthered through the talks rather than on the, the battlefield. And both sides need to see that the, the battlefield is, is waning and talks will offer more before they seriously uh, engage uh, in negotiations. But of course, from more so the Russian side, we, we hear, oh yeah, talk, talks are very well. A few days, we might have a draft agreement, and this is all seen as as stalling. What's the mood amongst the the, the people over there? Do they do they view that these these talks are actually doing anything, or do they do they see them as a bit of a bit of a sham at the moment? Is it just sort of a, a false hope that's being that's being held out, or maybe you're not getting any visibility of them at all? In one sense, I think people are not paying too much attention to the talks because a lot of the time they're just simply too consumed by what is going on around them. Um, and then, as you've also said, Dom, uh, there is a feeling that if these talks are going on, as long as the battlefield situation remains unresolved, then you know th- th- these are going to be kind of very much talks in the preliminary uh, sense of the word rather than anything that is going to yield a concrete agreement that is going to stop the fighting. Um, we did ask, we did ask some people last week about whether they felt that giving up on the op- agreeing never to join NATO was a, a fair price to pay for peace with Russia. Um, and, and there was mixed opinion on that. The, the, so, so, as some of your listeners will know already, um, this, this is something that President Zelensky has said a couple of weeks ago. He said, look, you know, um, we're prepared not to join NATO. We were never going to get NATO membership anyway. So if that's what it costs um, for peace with Russia, then why not? Um, uh, some people are sort of saying, well, yeah, that's fair enough. You know, if Mr. Zelensky can present um, uh, that as a concession to NATO, uh, sorry, as a concession to Mr. Putin, um, agreeing not to join NATO, i.e. agreeing not to join a club that wouldn't have had him, had him anyway, then why not, you know? Um, uh, but th- there are others, though, who are sort of saying, well, look, you know, um, uh, we, we have our own foreign policy objectives. There is a principle at stake here um, that we decide whether we're going to join NATO, not Mr. Putin. And we don't really want to be signing up to that kind of um, agreement, even if it, it does bring a short-term peace, because this week, or sorry, right now it will be NATO membership that Russia is complaining about. Next, it will be something else. And so th- th- there is some division of opinion over w- w- what, to, to what extent concessions should be made. And I think Mr. Zelensky has also now said that any, you know, any concessions, if if it does come to that, um, will have to be put to a popular referendum. Colin, is is there any talk on the ground about the potential for chemical and or biologic, biological weapons? I, I, is is there sort of elevated concern? Is anyone talking about protocols? Because here we see it as a, a different level of warfare. Um, and I, I was just wondering if if if, if Ukrainians uh, drew that that sort of you know differentiation. No, I've not heard anything on it. Um, a few observations on that. Um, I mean, I think this is something that President Biden has already said once or twice. It gets quite heavily reported because it's the, you know, it's the U.S. president saying it. I wouldn't rule out the Russians possibly using them somewhere in the field of battle, mainly for their psychological scare tactic rather than anything else. Um, I mean, you know, if, if you look at the, the range of weaponry that the Russians have, um, that there's some pretty fearsome weapons that they've got. Uh, you know, just in, in, in the conventional, you know, missiles and bombs um, uh, category, uh, would they really need to step over into using chemical weapons as well and then, you know, undoubtedly be consigning themselves to sort of 
uh, further accusations of war crimes and so on and so forth. Um, generally speaking, no, I, I've not heard it mentioned as a great sort of concern yet. And I think also anyone who's been on the receiving end of some of these big missiles that have been landing, like the one that we had in, in Kiev a couple of just yesterday, which demolished a, much of a shopping mall. You know, you see something like that coming in and you think, like, you know, that is quite scary enough. I don't need to sort of be worried about chemical weapons as well. I don't want to put you on the spot with another sort of too abstract question, but has has anything surprised you about the last three weeks and, and your reporting and, and what you've seen? Um, I th- what, one thing that I think perhaps readers, listeners might want to take away is that you, you see Kiev on the news, um, you know, with missiles landing in these huge high-rise apartment blocks, and it, it looks absolutely terrifying, you know. When you're actually here, um, it's... It's not quite like that. If you think of, say, London, imagine London with fighting in perhaps Ealing in the far west and Chigwell in the on the outskirts of London, or maybe Sevenoaks, um, you know, one of the towns outside of London. Um, uh, and imagine that you're you're there and there's fighting there, but not anywhere else. You know, in a lot of in that situation, a lot of parts of the city, you know, life just continues as normal. And Kiev is about half the size of London. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty big city. Um, so, you know, it, it's not quite as scary as it seems. Um, and also the, the idea that the Russians could completely surround this place hermetically, even with, you know, their full sort of army of 200,000. We did some calculations a few days ago. that you, you remember that there was this big armoured convoy of that was something like 60 miles long or something, even that would only be able to go something like a third of the way around the M25, for example. Um, and, you know, in order to seal the city off hermetically, you would have to have, you know, pretty much a kind of non-stop ring of troops around it. And then you would have to send people into the city to to kind of, you know, to occupy it there. Um, and, and that's before you get to the point where people are then fighting back. And, you know, you, you could potentially have the mother of all insurgencies going on here. And I just simply think, well, unless you've got several million troops, I don't really see how they could occupy the city block to block, um, you know, with, without um, encountering a great deal of resistance from people in between. Dom, I don't know if you want to come in on this. Uh, this is something you, you've spoken about quite a lot, I think. Yeah, we, we did some number crunching uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, and, and just thought it's just impossible. And they haven't got the troop density to to surround the city, let alone try and try and have any meaningful impact inside, which, as we've said repeatedly, is not a that's not necessarily a cause for great, great cheer, because that that just invites the tactics we've seen further south with this sort of heavy artillery Bombardment, but there there have been reports, Colin, of um, of Russian troops digging in, physically digging trenches to the north around Hostomel and what have you, which, which suggests that they're seeking to hold ground, maybe for any future negotiation, rather than try and advance their cause. I mean, are you getting these reports, or do they still seem to be attempting to get around to the, the west and the east and and, and encircle the city? Well, the, these northwest areas, yeah, I, I suppose the equivalent of somewhere like Watford, trying to take Watford, you know, which is a satellite town just northwest of London. Um, they've been there's been debate over this for the last few weeks. Some people I've spoken to, military experts, seem to think that what they're trying to do is get a kind of secure foothold. On uh, in that area around Hostomel and Erpin, which are separated from the Kiev main conurbation by a kind of a river, a river area, and so on, and and effectively use that as a forward operating base, a, a, a sort of a safe space that where they can kind of establish control to then bring lots of heavy artillery in and other things, so that they can then start shelling Kiev from there. Um, uh, or, or indeed use it as a forward operating base for ultimately invading. Um, you know, the, the, the Kremlin doesn't leak its plans, so nobody really knows. But, um, yeah, the, the, they're not going away yet. Um, on the other hand, you hear other people saying that the whole Kremlin, the, the whole Kiev um, operation is something of a decoy um, while, the, while the Russian forces clean up uh, or, or, you know, take 
concentrate our forces on on the eastern areas, and that once they've done that to their satisfaction, they might say, "Okay, right, we're we're, we're up for a peace deal now." And hey, do you know what, guys? We're, we're prepared to pull our troops from Kiev and present that as a concession. Um, you know uh, that, that they never, you know, that they'll they'll agree not to besiege Kiev and try to take it when actually they never intended to in the first place. From everything you've seen in the last few weeks, Colin, what what worries or concerns you the most about the direction this war is heading? Well, I mean, I suppose it's like when you, whenever you watch any war anywhere, um, you know, th- these things usually happen because there's been bitterness sown by people over generations for one reason or another. Um, uh, and something like this lays the seeds of a lot more bitterness and anger. Um, which might in future generations be taken out not just against, you know, might might be directed between Ukrainians and Russians in general, as opposed to, you know, um, something that has been maybe started just by Mr. Putin. Uh, and and, and that, that, is, that is concerning. It's also very sad just seeing the, the, the dates of birth of a lot of the people who are dying. You know, you see somebody born the year 2000, year 1999 so on you know these these are the sort of young millennial generation and they're um that they're dying at a you know um a very significant rate um and also if the russians do do try and take this city i think all hell will break loose in terms of you know uh, trying to occupy it. it will be the mother of all insurgencies um i was based in baghdad after the fall of saddam hussein where you had the Americans coming in, toppling a regime that was very unpopular and initially being, you know, welcomed on the streets, cheered on the streets. And then within, you know, six months or so, they were fighting an insurgency that was, you know, not not backed by any means, backed by the entire population. Whereas here, you know, they, uh, they are coming in, they are despised and hated from from the word go. And... If there is a serious insurgency here, it won't just be like the the one that you had in Iraq, where it's guys with homemade, um, I you know, I homemade roadside bombs and um, and machine guns. It's going to be people armed with every bit of conceivable modern weaponry uh, that you can imagine, probably with also CIA and MI5 backing and the backing of several major nation states in and around the the region. It, it, I think the idea that it would be Russia's Vietnam is perhaps putting it mildly, um, and let's hope that it doesn't get to that, because if you get an awful lot of Russian soldiers dying here, that will again sow that, those seeds of anger that, you know, my, my son died in, in Ukraine, and um, that the, the wise and wherefores of it will, be, will often be forgotten. It's just, you know, blood being spilt between two nations, which is not a good thing. Sorry, that may sound a bit bleeding obvious, but there you go. No, thank you. Um, I realise we're starting to run out of time here, I think. So, um, Mutaz and Dom, are there any questions you have? Um, any at all? Just a final one for me, if I may. Um, Colin, so I was in uh, Bosnia in the late 90s, uh, Bosnia and Croatia, actually, and there was, there, was a, there was a, I guess it was the blitz spirit in action. It was just this kind of wild excitement amongst um, mainly the young, younger people. But, I mean, does, is that the feel? What's the mood in in Kiev today. I mean, what do you do of an evening? How are you eating? Where are you going? What's, what, are you, what are you sort of experiencing every, every day? <laughs> there is a curfew for me in the evening, so there is not much um, uh, nightlife, unfortunately. Um, there is also a booze ban, um, which means, you know, there's no alcohol on sale anywhere, and it's pretty strictly enforced. Um, I've heard reports of occasionally shops opening up and having the you know when the police have got to find out about it they've gone around smashing all the bottles and things like that it's you know it, it's the wartime discipline is in is in force here uh, but I, I think in, in terms of the sort of blitz spirit you know if if the soldiers that one meets at checkpoints are anything to go by um you know that there's still laughs and smiles and and politeness and courtesy at checkpoints which does suggest that you know morale is still quite high i guess mutas just two final questions from me i guess that look just on that morale point are people in kiev surprised at how well their own uh, army is the the, the the ukrainian forces are holding up you know uh everyone in the west is i guess surprised i remember reading um, just before the invasion, that 
a lot of people in, in Ukraine didn't believe the US intelligence reports about an imminent invasion. And the US intelligence was right about that. The US intelligence then believed that Russia would overrun Ukraine within a few days, and it was wrong. Um, is there a sense in Kiev of, we told you so, we told you we'd fight, and we told you this would happen? And the second, I, God, I'll ask the second one afterwards. Um, in terms, I think there is a, people were wondering whether the Ukrainian forces would simple, simply crumble at the first sight of the Russian tanks, yes. You, you do have to remember that the Ukrainians have been fighting the Russian separatists in the east of Ukraine for eight years now. So, so they have a lot of people who have tasted combat already, who are battle-hardened and who are well-placed to defend their own cities when they saw Russian armour coming in. Um, so, you know, that the, 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 they're, they're used to scrapping. Uh, as I said, in, in the cemetery that we went to a few days ago, you can see quite a few, a few graves. So that they're not people who are afraid of a fight. I think that probably helps. Um, having said that, also, I think that there was perhaps a few quite important um, uh, victories at the beginning, or not victories, but examples where Ukrainian troops did carry on fighting. I think you had the the incident that I think was called Snake Island, where some Ukrainian sailors told a Russian warship to um, to to get lost rather than surrender. Um, it's not clear whether that incident is actually, was actually kind of quite as it turned out to be. But I, I think the sense, if, if you had some initial resistance was put up, I think from the point of view of other Ukrainians wondering whether they, you know, whether they should fight when their turn came. If they saw other people fighting, then they'd probably do the same. If they'd seen other troops surrendering, on the other hand, they might have thought, "Well, hang on, what's the point of me losing my life if um, if lots of other people aren't? You know, what? Why should I be the one to lose my life if everybody else is surrendering?" And I think the dynamic has gone in in you know in in the direction of everybody deciding that they are up for this fight. And of course, you know, the, the, the terrain as well favours them. They're defending their home turf. Yeah. And, and finally, you've, you, you obviously have a fair bit of experience, but as a journalist, sort of going out, how are you keeping yourself uh, safe? We, we've seen, obviously, quite tragic examples of journalists getting um, killed. So uh, how, how do you think about sort of your own protection um, how you approach people, uh, or are you not thinking about that at all? Well, the, the, the people, you know, the, among the Ukrainians, um, we are, you know, actually fairly, you know, fairly popular or, you know, at least tolerated. It's not like certain parts of the Middle East these days where being a Westerner can, you know, can make you a target. Um, uh, and then, um, or certainly amongst, you know, certain insurgent groups, it can make you a target. Um, where, where people have come unstuck, journalists have come unstuck, is in places like Irpin, which is one of the suburbs out towards the west, where, you know, like a lot of battle fronts, it's, the front lines shift back and forth. And unfortunately, it is rather easy to, you know, drive down the wrong road or whatever and suddenly find yourself, um, uh, you know, in the line of sight of, you know, a Russian frontline or whatever who may choose to open fire on you um i, I again I, I wouldn't want to suggest that every russian soldier is primed to open fire on any press vehicle that he he or she see he or she sees um two colleagues of mine um freelance colleagues were up in and around the urban area the contested area about two weeks ago ran into a Russian checkpoint in their car, um, were told to stop, and then had a, a rather hairy five minutes while the Russians checked their documents. And then the, the commanding officer, who they said seemed a, a pretty professional uh, you know, guy, just said, right, you know, you're good, um, off you go, head back in that direction, please, and don't come back. So, you know, um, you, you can be lucky, but you can also be very unlucky as well, and your vehicle can stray into the into the wrong area and suddenly find itself being being fired at um and that's happened to a few people already there was also a risk of shell fire as well and i, I wouldn't just say it's it, it it's a 
you know, the risk is purely from the Russian side. Either you've got two groups of combatants pointing weapons at each other, cars that come up, and, you know, that suddenly appear unexpectedly um, can be mistaken for, you know, enemy vehicles in one manner or another or saboteurs or whatever. And, um, you know, you can't just be a victim, of, you know, a victim of trigger happy soldiers opening fire um, uh, and, you know, in, in friendly fire incidents. Thanks, Colin. Just a, a final question from me. Uh, you mentioned you, you may be coming home rather soon. When you come home, do you think there's a, a particular memory from the past three weeks that will, that will stand out for you? That when you think back, you'll think, you'll think of that thing first? And if so, what is it? Of, of sort of speaking to people and seeing people here possibly not that if I, if i'm honest my abiding memory of this so far uh, having covered a, a few conflicts on the part is sort of is what's been going on in my own head it, it's it's quite scary you know because you think like hang on we're in a country where world war 3 might be starting or or something very similar that this is this is proper grown up warfare you know with a, a proper grown up russian the, the world's second superpower is on the other side you know, there is no part of the country. I was in Lviv for the first week in the West, you know, well away from where the fighting was in Kiev and the East. But you think like there is nowhere in this part of the world that you in this country that you cannot be reached by these Russian forces. Um, they have te- satellite technology. They have drone technology. They have their hypersonic missiles. They have everything. They've got the full game kit. And, you know, it, it, it's it's quite an intimidating you know, conflict to cover. Everything else I've ever covered has always been in the Middle East or in parts of Africa where it's it's localised forces, you know, w- without access to really advanced weaponry. And and that does make it scary. And um, if it scares me a bit, you know, and I can go home if the going gets too tough, hopefully. God knows what it's like for the people who actually live here. And we just heard from the Telegraph's Dominic Nichols there, our defence and security editor, Earlier, he had the chance to speak to Lulia Osmolovska, a former diplomat with the Ukrainian embassy, an international relations and negotiations expert, and a consultant to the Ukrainians during the ongoing peace talks. Dom started by asking Lulia how you approach the act of negotiation in this type of conflict. Well, to answer your question, we need to start with the previous mode of uh, negotiation style that Russians have been applying to all this communication with, uh, with the Ukrainian side, uh, because the conflict uh, has started much earlier than just this direct invasion in uh, February this year. The Russian side always wanted to demonstrate uh, that... Uh, they don't see any use of talking to Ukrainian side. So this is what we call the strategy of avoidance of negotiations. So they always said that uh, because Ukrainian political leadership uh, doesn't impact uh, anything in, in the country, so what's the use of talking to them? And actually, funny enough, but uh, this philosophy or this logic still prevails in uh, top Russian political leadership because just today I, uh, I've got information that despite the ongoing talk, or so-called talks and negotiations on the working level, the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, again refused to talk to Vladimir Zelensky upon the request of Ukrainian side. Eventually, question comes, uh, what the Russian side using these negotiations for? We call their strategy as a sort of imitation of negotiations. So they're trying to uh, present the case that they are quite... Um, uh, cooperative side, which is looking for some way out of the existing conflicts and uh, looking for solutions. Uh, but this is just uh, the image, because on substantive elements, we don't see anything of this kind in real uh, ground. So this is like a phony war of negotiations. They're not serious at the moment. Yes, they're not serious. Uh, you can uh, analyze or judge about this assessment uh, on, from different elements. Uh, first and foremost is the composition of the delegations. So you always have to understand that the opponent or the other party has uh, enough autonomy for decision making. And uh, that means that uh, you are able to generate and to create some sort of creative uh, options to consider further rather than simply state and read the text uh, which you've been prescribed to by the high authority uh, before you entered the negotiation table. So this is not the case with the Russian side at the moment because uh, the head of delegation uh, 
someone called uh, Mr. Medinsky, an advisor to President Putin, former minister for culture. But uh, in the uh, negotiation realm, I never came across this name. So it was quite, uh, I even could hardly recall how he looks like because uh, all of them are rather plain and unimpressive uh, figures. Then the other guy who is at this uh, negotiation team, uh, he used to chair the Russian delegation to the uh, trilateral contact group, which is rather technical level, adjunct to the Normandy format. And they had uh, no single authority to decide on any single aspect of the conflict. And the third guy, which is quite an uh, interesting choice of Russian side, is uh, uh, someone uh, of the Russian politicians and MP uh, called Mr. Slutsky, who is well known for his uh, very harsh offensive uh, remarks, humiliating remarks about Ukrainians as such, uh, the Ukrainian political leadership and the Ukraine as a state. So once you bring in such a toxic figure on the, at negotiation tables, which irritates obviously the other side, that means that you're not seriously interested in negotiations and such. So how much autonomy should a negotiating team have? Do they have to work within a certain set of parameters that are given to them from above? I mean, how creative can they themselves be? How much can they sign up to without having to put everything back up to uh, to Moscow? Well, it depends on the uh, different culture of decision-making of uh, different countries. Uh, if you compare Ukrainian negotiation mode and uh, Russian one, uh, so obviously I would uh, say that Ukrainian team has more room for maneuver in uh, trying to explore different options uh, and come up with different proposals. And uh, the Russian side is more rigid, I should say. Uh, decision-makers, even uh, they're not taken at the level of the Minister of Foreign Affairs in Russia. So, you know, the decision are taken just by one person there, then all of them subordinated to, to the lower levels. Uh, therefore, it was uh, very strange to listen or to hear the Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs of Russia, Mr. Lavrov, speaking after the meeting with our minister in Turkey recently, that uh, we can't comment on any issues of the peace settlement uh, or we even can't consider them because uh, you have uh, delegations uh, and working groups talking on that uh, on the level that you've set up a meeting in Belarus. So that means that uh, definitely there is no uh, real desire to seek for some viable solutions and negotiations. So what should we look out for then? What will be the signs that Russia are coming to these negotiations seriously? Well, uh, it's not probably about the science. Uh, It is about the moment of ripeness of negotiation. Uh, This is something uh, which uh, stems from the methodology of uh, Philip Sartman about this moment of ripeness, uh, which is... uh, Uh, which describes the situation when uh, the two sides are ready to negotiate and to seek for some substantive solutions. Uh, This moment uh, uh, um, appears when uh, both parties understand that the status quo they have at the moment is intolerable for both of them, and uh, they can't resolve this issue uh, unilaterally without communicating and uh, engaging in cooperation with the other side. To my assessment, Russians uh, still don't feel this sense of ripeness for them, despite the fact that they uh, obviously underperforming heavily in the battlefield, uh, which definitely should have created uh, an expectations that Russian side would be ready to compromise and show these signs of real uh, engagement in negotiations. And this could be reflected through them lowering down their initial demands. But this hasn't happened. So uh, when Putin uh, actually declared about this uh, decision to invade Ukraine, he put his uh, extreme demands, which he would like, to, he, which he seeks from Ukrainian or expects from Ukrainian leadership, that is um, uh, to give up with uh, European and NATO aspirations, to recognize Crimea as uh, Russian territory, to recognize so-called independent republics uh, in eastern uh, regions of Ukraine, and also... Uh, to stop completely all military and technical cooperation with Western partners. And if you look at the dynamic of these negotiations so far, Russians uh, haven't withdrawn any of these uh, demands, initial demands, uh, which is quite strange, as I mentioned, because uh, obviously if you're losing, if you're losing this uh, gener- uh, g- this power for negotiation at the negotiation table, definitely you uh, should be ready to compromise on something. They don't show these signs. Uh, therefore, still my 
assessment of these negotiations, uh, uh, as uh, as you rightly said, at very very early stage of real substantive talks. And so, what are you advising the Ukrainian government at the moment about their negotiating position? Well, uh, the first and foremost, uh, we shouldn't concentrate at this stage uh, on uh, substantive elements of negotiations. We should uh, assess uh, uh, the strategy of negotiations as such, uh, which should be judged on the balance of power, because, as I said, this balance is shifting uh, and uh, being uh, becoming more favorable to, for Ukrainian side. That means that uh, uh, we could already push forward some of our initiatives and uh, keep pressing Russians with something. So it is about the strategy of negotiations. Then it is about the Russian tactics they are playing. Uh, uh, most of Russian sections are based on so-called Kremlin school of harsh negotiations, which is the mixture of methods of all the Soviet school uh, diplomacy of Andrei Gromyka, the then Minister for Foreign Affairs of USSR, and also the combination of KGB elements um, uh, based on deceit, on humiliation, on um, very stressful uh, and aggressive and offensive behavior. Uh, the main goal of which is to put the opponent into emotional uh, mode of uh, assessing situation, which means that you can't assess uh, rationally what is good, what is uh, uh, not very suitable for you, and uh, a lot of manipulations are being used uh, with this regard. So Russians are well known for these deceitful tactics, uh, but uh, this is not something which is known on wider scale to Ukrainian audience or to Ukrainian political elites, because they haven't been engaged in negotiations with Russians on, on a number of of occasions on this particular sensitive issue. So we're advising basically on these tactics, we're advising on Ukrainian strategy and uh, this negotiation strategy should be flexible, uh, adjustable to the situation and always reassessing this balance of power. And then also uh, it is about sequence of uh, steps, sequence of issues to discuss. And it is about the different level of negotiations. So we shouldn't be just limited to this lower level lower technical level, which doesn't, uh, especially from Russian side, uh, uh, doesn't have an authority to decide on anything. So how do you do that? How do, how do, you, uh, if, how do you manage a team of negotiators if, there are, if you're at the coalface and you are being humiliated and they are, they are trying to get all these emotional responses from you? How do you stay detached from that to keep the negotiations going the way you want to without... without <laughs> feeling as if you have to have to jump in and counter every single annoyance that's thrown at you. No, the, uh, one of the most probably efficient tools is just uh, to be ignorant uh, to to these personal offensive remarks. Because, as I say, if you understand their logic, if uh, you understand that they are doing this deliberately to get you out of a rational mode of thinking, so you can just uh, simply be distracted from that. Because uh, what uh, comes with manipulations, uh, they are quite easy to uh, be neutralized uh, if you uh, label this uh, as a manipulation, if you recognize this as a tool of manipulating uh, uh, about you, and you can be just uh, staying very balanced and uh, untouched by this uh, mood. So basically, when uh, Russians are trying to behave like that, uh, uh, getting very personal, you just have to keep the poker face and continue and go on with, with rational stuff. Now, we've heard President Zelensky say in, in recent days that the issue of NATO could be could be parked, could be on the back burner some some years uh, for the future. So he sounds as if he's, he's willing to to have a discussion about about that and about future security guarantees. But in terms of sovereignty, will Ukraine accept any form of of land being lost to Russia? Uh, I don't see any possibility for that uh, because uh, uh, recent uh, uh, public opinion polls show that uh, Ukrainian society uh, is not ready to compromise on these issues. They're quite confident that uh, Ukrainian armed forces and Ukrainian political leadership has all the uh, cards in their uh, hands right now to play with uh, uh, 
the victorious game and uh, to defeat Russia completely uh, on all uh, uh, levels in uh, on battlefield and diplomatic and negotiation realms. Uh, therefore, uh, out of these expectations, it's very uh, difficult. It would be very difficult for uh, Ukrainian negotiation team and political leadership uh, to compromise substantially on uh, particular issues of territorial integrity uh, and then to sell it to Ukrainian public. And uh, this is something that um, Ukrainian negotiation team is not ready to consider and compromise at all. That means that more than 50% of Russian demands are not being taken into consideration right, um, right now. And then also uh, we uh, identify this as a um, a sort of uh, Russian uh, strategic goal to play with this in order to create uh, uh, the distortion within Ukrainian society uh, and split over these uh, interpretations uh, of uh, uh, the achievements or uh, questionable achievements of Ukrainian delegation in, in these talks and then to create uh, this, uh, to break the solidarity and unity and support of Russian society to uh, uh, Ukra of Ukrainian society uh, to Ukrainian political elites. So, uh, because Russians have this aim, they will be trying to uh, negotiate uh, such ambiguous uh, uh, commitments that they could be selling like betrayal of Ukrainian political uh, authorities and negotiators just in order uh, to shake the society, to shake the Ukraine from within and to break this solidarity that's been uh, observed for, for the last months. But equally, there, there's, there's no room back for Putin, is there? I mean, he can't go out, of the, he can't leave this without... I mean, he set out some maximalist aims at the start um, and anything less than that will seem like a defeat for him, won't it? How are you able to negotiate and allow Putin, as offensive as it may sound, but allow him to save some face in this in order to get a negotiated settlement? I don't think uh, that uh, right now there is the moment of ripeness uh, in negotiations for both sides. Uh, and uh, we are in a more beneficial position uh, with regard to Russia because time plays in our hands. In a way, yes, definitely uh, we suffer a huge horrific losses uh, with uh, human life, uh, with all these devastations in our uh, cities and towns. But Ukrainian society, Ukrainian people are, re are ready to sustain this because uh, they see actually the light at the end of the channel. They uh, really count on uh, uh, victory of Ukraine over Russia in this war. Therefore, in, for Russians, for instance, this time is uh, completely against them because if we're to, talking about this uh, status quo and uh, comfort zone uh, in a particular moment, uh, uh, we, if, if the opponent is much uh, bigger, much more powerful, then we work with this set of circumstances for him uh, to, to make him weaker. And right now, this, uh, this is precisely what's happening with Russia at the moment, because, uh, uh, say, in two weeks' time or uh, months' time, Russian internal environment uh, or internal disconsent with what's going on uh, will be rising because of sanctions, because of all this. Still, you can't hide all the information about uh, severe losses that Russia encounters in, in Ukraine these days. So there will be some sort of pressure from uh, mothers who just don't know where the sons are. Uh, then uh, also complete a new wave of sanctions and international boycott, uh, which just increases uh, the pressure on, on Russia political elites. Then also we already have heard information about uh, big quarrels within the inner circle of uh, Putin, uh, of different sides blaming the other about this failure of, of uh, Blitzkrieg in, in Ukraine. For instance, uh, the Minister of Defense Shoigu blames uh, the FSB people for not being correct with their calculations, which actually forced uh, uh, Russian political leadership to take the wrong decision and to enter Ukraine and uh, then they had all this military campaign suffered and vice versa. Uh, Secret Service of Russia blamed the Minister of Defense uh, for high corruptions and not uh, very well prepared army to fight on Ukrainian territory. So this also will be shaking the situation from inside for Putin. Uh, and all these factors combined all together, uh, also with poor performance of Russia on uh, Ukrainian soil, uh, this will create the moment when uh, Russian political leadership uh, uh, definitely will come to understanding that they need 
some way out of this because so far they don't show any signs of this understanding. And when they will, at this point, uh, it would be crucial uh, or uh, important to have these uh, talks on the highest level. So all these technical negotiations, they mean nothing uh, to, be, to be true. And once political leaders meet, uh, also with the assistance of uh, international uh, mediators of a bigger bigger powers and players who are equally responsible, uh, respected by both sides. I think that at this point in the future, a real substantive negotiating uh, outcome is possible. So it's very early days. Um, I look forward to talking again as the negotiations start in earnest. Uh, but in terms of talking at the highest level, you've been in town for a couple of days. You met Boris Johnson. What did he say to you? It was not me who actually met Boris Johnson. Uh, I know that uh, uh, the British uh, uh, side is also very keen to offer its uh, expertise and advice on that. Uh, and uh, this is, uh, I personally, as a professional negotiator, consider uh, as a very strong advantage uh, because uh, uh, your country has uh, good experience of settling this Good Friday Agreement uh, uh, for Ireland, uh, which is... Uh, being uh, which was uh, closely studied by Ukrainian side as well, and uh, a number of other professional expertise that we would like to bring in. So hopefully that uh, we could uh, uh, comment uh, and uh, present some sort of uh, very meaningful cooperation between Ukraine and UK on this particular uh, aspect uh, of uh, international affairs as well. Lulia, thank you very much for coming in, and I, I very much look forward to chatting again. Thank you very much for inviting. Thank you. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Sophie Coe.